Welcome to What's Really Happening in Southern Utah, the podcast. I'm your host, Dan Kidder. Our podcast is all about issues facing Southern Utah. Here we will announce your upcoming events, talk with movers and shakers in our community about important issues facing Beaver, Iron, Kane, and Washington counties, and make sure you are kept in the loop with interesting news and commentary of local interest. While we welcome folks from all over, our goal with this podcast is to give residents of Southern Utah a place to find out about issues that affect them. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and also on our Facebook group, What's Really Happening in Southern Utah, and online at What's Really Happening SU.com. Welcome back, everybody. We're here in the studio. It has been a minute. And the last time we were here in the studio, we were talking about the Enoch tragedy and what people in this community can do, how they can talk to their kids, uh, mental health resources that are available. And there's been some uh, movement since our last podcast. Uh, Give you a little background. Back in the end of last year, I started a nonprofit called the Friends of the Iron County Sheriff. We submitted our paperwork into the IRS and we had it back within three weeks, which my girlfriend is a CPA, so this is absolutely impossible. So it made me kind of worry that something was on the horizon that we were going to need that for. And sure enough, this tragedy in Enoch occurred. And in keeping with our mandate, we held a fundraiser at the Elks Lodge. And with the the generosity of this community, we were able to raise just around $30,000 to provide uh, additional health, mental health resources for the first responder community. But half of that money also went to the Haight family and in talking with them, they're making some of those funds available for the general community at large to get additional help. So here in the studio with us today to kind of tell us what's going on, I've got Cindy Baldwin, who is a close friend and neighbor to the Haight family, and she's got 20 plus years of experience in the nonprofit and community collaboration fields. And then I also have with us uh, Rob Dotson, Enix City Manager. I'm sure if you've watched any television around this, you've, you've seen Rob. Um, almost nobody knew who you were uh, nationwide. Everybody in Enoch knew who you were, but now you're known in households all across the country. And then I've also got with us uh, Amy Nielsen, who's a clinical mental health counselor with PB&J Consulting. She was also a friend and neighbor of the Haight family. And she specializes in the treatment of trauma for individuals, families, and children. And uh, a bunch of groups have gotten together and are doing some great things to help the community move forward from this. Rob, tell us a little bit about that. Well, thanks, Dan, for having this podcast, having this opportunity for us to talk to the community uh, in this um, way. <clears throat> yes, so after the event on January 4th um, last month, um, we found that there's an underlying current of challenges that we've, we've had to meet head on. Initially, law enforcement has a very robust mental health um, avenues to get some help. Um, they experienced this type of trauma based upon their jobs and and we've been able to reach out a very very great collaborative approach that we have with our local uh, mental health therapists with of course your organization raising funds to pay for some of that and um, there's many avenues that law enforcement has unfortunately um, neighbors friends people who have been associated with um, the deceased in this instance um, have have found we found that some are reluctant 
to reach out for help. We found that um, some are not understanding what that means to reach out for help and what that looks like, how to describe what that is. Um, and so we've discovered by discovering this and also having such a great collaborative approach with law enforcement, we discussed having the same type of approach for those in the community who are not able to access easily mental health resources. Also, you know, we live in a society where um, we need to tough it out, right? We, we live in well, that's that's the the myth I think that's <laughs> that's propagated amongst us. But yeah, yeah, and and that myth or that that feeling, of course, is is prevalent um, among families. We we are a, a very um, religious community, and we reach out to the good resources that we have. But there are some um, other resources available, and we we discovered this. After this event, when we were hearing anecdotally about families that were suffering, um, how to react to this, how to have the conversations, how to to really discover where individuals and families were are mentally and emotionally, and what it was doing to them, and we we got together with numerous individuals um, and um, other um, therapists and thought if we could just find a way to help individuals understand and families understand the resources that are available and that's not as difficult as it seems. Um, and so by doing that and by having these conversations, all of a sudden it was like a spigot opened up and people who were associated with uh, mental health facilities, um, with family resource facilities like Cindy, um, with Children's Justice Center with all these different organizations, Southwest Behavioral Health. We we just kind of put this meeting together. Uh, Amy is kind of heading that up with Cindy. Kind of put this meeting together to to have the discussion. What can we do? How can we help Enoch residents, primarily, but secondarily, peop, other people associated with the hate family, in in what other form that is. Personally, anecdotally, I've had conversations with individuals who are close to the hates, and they are struggling to understand what happened, why it happened, how it happened, and how to process that in their own understanding of, of the world around them. Um, I myself have had a few challenges with my role as um, the public information officer for Enix City and, and taking that on and, and working with uh, the animal of the media, which we need to get the word out, but it is a voracious and hungry animal that needs to be fed. And that has become a great challenge and continues to, to do, to be so. However, along these lines, this group got together. We just had a, a, a meeting, I guess you could say, and, and how could we facilitate getting education out to the individuals and families in our communities, not just Enix City, but others that are associated with this incident, and and actually get them in front of someone who can educate and teach and perhaps lead people towards healthy mental, healthy thinking, healthy understanding. Now there are, and I said this um, on the to the national media, there are not going to be answers to some of the questions people have. The whys are just, there's there's no 
answer to that, and that's hard for people to understand. And for us as human beings who care and love for people, it's hard for us to relate to the, the not understanding the why, and it creates an environment where we, where we have problem processing what that means for us. And so along those lines, this group has got together, and it's very robust. They've already had um, different avenues to get the word out. And I'm going to leave that to Amy and to Cindy to really discuss with uh, the listeners and with you, Dan, what is available now and the direction we're going. The most important thing in my role as the city manager is to take what the city council and the mayor are feeling about what needs to be done as the representatives of the community and make things happen. And that's what we're doing here. So I appreciate that. Um, if you have any questions um, along these lines, Dan, I'd, I'd appreciate that now as we get started in this conference. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you, you talked about the, the why, and I think, and Amy can back, probably back me up on this, when we're discussing mental illness, it's an illness. It's it's an illness like diabetes. It's an illness like cancer. And, and trying to place our mind into the mind of somebody who is mentally ill, we can never connect on that level because we don't have that problem, right? We don't have that illness. So trying to make sense of something like this is, is not something that we're going to be able to do. Isn't that right, Amy? With some education, we definitely can, though. And that's kind of the point of this, right, is to um, some of what our goal is in this committee we've created is disseminate um, the right information, the right education about what illnesses could come out of a situation like that. We're, you know, obviously we're looking at um, concerns for post-traumatic stress. That's going to be our primary thing. And a lot of people do think of um, mental illness in general as, as, as just needing to change thoughts. If I can just change my thoughts, if I can just think right about it, then I've got this and I'm going to be fine. But we actually have a long, uh, long stint of really amazing research of the physical impact to the brain that trauma has. It's an actual physical change in how the brain is electrically firing. And when that change is in there, it changes how we think and feel. And you cannot think your way back out of it. You need the appropriate treatment methods to reprogram that firing. And that is what we can offer in treatment. And some of those things um, that Amy was mentioning, we can identify by the way our body reacts. Um, she, may she may talk here about methods of therapy that are, that are very um, fact-based and, and research-based on how to change that process in our brains, the physical process, and how it impacts our body. Because our bodies are almost like signposts, right? When something's happening, we feel a certain way. It's going to be some kind of anxiety-related, um, whatever it is, our bodies react to it. And, and that's what's so amazing about understanding me mental health today. I had a, a conversation with some loved ones of mine that, that I grew up with saying, oh, just tough it out, you know, just buck up little camper and go to go to work. That's and always driven me crazy as, as a former law enforcement officer. Uh, that that mentality because I, I was in law enforcement in the 80s I'm old um, and the uh, the concept there was always you know cowboy up rub some dirt on it keep going you don't talk about this stuff that's weak that's 
we've moved forward tremendously, I think, and we're seeing that now in this incident where it's okay to get help. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to talk to somebody. It's encouraged. I mean, our police chief, Darren Adams, is phenomenal here in Cedar City on making resources available for his officers, encouraging them to get assistance. Back in my day, if, if you asked for help, you could be sat on a desk. You could, you know, be taken off the street. I'm, I'm so glad that we're moving forward in that way and also that we're having conversations now that just never would have been had 10, even maybe five years ago. Um, and, but so we're, we're talking about different groups here. We're talking about guys that are going through what Michael was going through and might be considering either harming themselves or harming their families or others. Um, so that's, that's one group. An, another group is the people who had to respond and pick up the pieces to that. Uh, and, and that's all of our first responder community, community from dispatchers to EMS to uh, law enforcement. Um, but we're also talking to children who may have gone to school with these children that, that were murdered. Um, and then we're talking to just the general community. You know, when these things happen, we had we had Caitlin in here from Canyon Creek Services. She said that their hotline's lighting up with women who are afraid that they may be victims of domestic violence. And so those conversations are, are being had. And we've got Cindy with us. She's she's a neighbor of and friend of Tasha, um, who was the mother uh, that was, well, the, the wife of Michael, who was killed, and, and the mother of the children. Um, and so... Cindy, what feelings did you immediately come to grips with as as you heard what was what had happened, and what what was kind of the the process that you moved through as as a friend of this family and a neighbor of this family? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I was at work when my husband gave me a call. We were pretty early on to find out because we live right on the same street, just two doors down. And so uh, my husband called me, told me the news, and I immediately, immediate trauma response. I spent, my hands started shaking. I, I just was in total shock. And, and I just kind of paced back and forth. I went out to my vehicle. I thought, I need to go home. And then I didn't have my keys, and I came back in. And I, I just couldn't even function, like, think and and so I got a ride home um, someone gave me a ride because I just felt like I almost wasn't even safe to drive and I got home and from that point forward it was just I mean Amy's husband was on my doorstep talking to my husband and my husband had just broke the news to him because he came to pick up uh, his daughter. Oh, so he wasn't there because of the event. He was there. Nope. He showed up at our house to pick up his daughter because we pick her up from school and she was there. Um, our kids are all there. They're, they're just um, <clears throat> confused and not understanding what's going on. The police are starting to show up. Um, they, they're blocking the street off with the crime tape and police lights and the I don't think the, the crime scene trailer had even shown up at that point. That was a little while later. Um, but, uh, my sister-in-law down the street came, took our kids, which I was really thankful for, just kind of got them, removed them from the area. But I mean, Amy's husband was on my front porch and in total shock. He had just gotten the news 
Um, other neighbors were showing up saying, what's going on? Because they're seeing the police lights. And so we're the first point of contact for, for many neighbors and having to break that news. And um, it, was, it was really traumatic. Um, it, I mean, those first few days were just, it's hard to even explain what it feels like to not only be in crisis yourself, but then to have your entire family and your neighbors and your community, everyone in crisis, because it just was such a horrific event and people are in shock. And um, I personally wasn't this, I mean, I think everyone probably has a different way of handling it based on their own experience of this family and the situation. I was very close with Tasha. She was a dear friend. I was one of her safe people that she had opened up to and talked to about a lot of what was going on inside the home. So I had seen um, some of the patterns of abuse and seen things escalating and knew that things were high risk. And because you have, you have a background in domestic sure. violence, so sure. and I think that that I was able to validate, really validate her and and what she was going through because of that and and I do think my brain is trained to just see red flags and to notice things uh, because of my knowledge and experience and training in the field um, versus the neighbor across the street who had just gone hunting with Mike a couple months ago he was shocked he had no idea that there were any problems in the home and he was just devastated and shocked so so there's those who you know were just seeing the facade um, and the happy family who were just utter shock and then there's those of us who were really close to the family and who um, who were shocked in a different way um, I think that and Amy you can correct me if I'm wrong here but um, children are amazingly resilient in, in these types of situations and, and they kind of get distracted by the next shiny thing and move on, but we don't often see the little seeds of trauma that have been planted that sometimes don't manifest themselves for years, for decades, and then the, and they can rise out. And and so how do we look for those those signs of those seeds of trauma that have been planted, and, and how do we try to root them out and deal with them? <clears throat> Rob kind of uh, spoke just a teeny bit to to this and that when we are when we're experiencing trauma or experience a trauma response it's going to be physical reactions your body has uh, physical changes you know cindy spoke about you know she was shaking and things like that and so in those immediate moments you have those intense physical reactions but over a span of time like you said kiddos are going to look at the next shiny thing and are moving on but you might still see some small shifts or changes in their behaviors uh, possibly demonstrations that they don't feel as safe. So they might be clinging to mom a little bit more, um, hiding behind her leg a little bit more, asking more questions, showing more levels of concern, showing higher intensity over situations that, you know, maybe one day they were fine to eat the broccoli, the next day it is like a, it's like a 10 level, I'm not eating the broccoli, you know, because the intensity is going to be higher. That's some of the reaction of that, those shifts in the brain that it, it causes us to fire at a higher intensity. And so you're going to see even normal kiddo behaviors, but a little bit bigger or maybe even a lot bigger. But another huge thing to watch for is how they're playing. 
um, kiddos process, and actually even so do adults, we just don't play like kids do, but we pro- kiddos process through play. And so I'm hearing um, stories from teachers and, and uh, playground aides and stuff like that, that they're watching violence play out on the playground. Not like necessarily a kid against kid, but that they're enacting violent stories. And, and that is their brain trying to process the reality of the violence of the nature of this event. And that's actually okay if it's, if it's uh, being played out and it's uh, being talked about and there's a safe environment there to, to help them allow that processing of that. Um, some of the challenges that we're hearing back, though, is that since we don't know how to address that, is then sometimes these kiddos are being shut down. Oh, we don't talk about that. Oh, let's not play like that. And, and that worries us. And again, this is why we want to offer some education. We need to create some safe spaces for not just kiddos, but adults to be able to go ahead and talk about and process out on these things. So they don't just end up as these seeds planted in our subconscious that then actually impact us for years, years and years of our life. And steps are being taken right now to help address that. Rob, talk, talk to us a little bit about what's going on, some of the, the treatment options that are available, some resources that are available to the community going on right now. Well, I think one of the things, if, if we just step back a second and see that the need is there. Okay, um, my family, my neighbors, other people have experienced something, right? And and they've able to handle it in certain ways themselves, right? We have resiliency as children and as adults, but as our our brain shifted after this incident, those who were more connected, maybe more than others, and those who are experienced trauma in the past, this may have have has triggered a little bit of that. The brain shift has happened, and and so what we need to do, and what we've been doing, is trying to find out who those people are, who need to have a conversation about this, who need to be given some tools and some understanding as what their body's doing when the brain shifts. Um, so what what's happened is, of course, we got this group of people together. I think we've got you were in the last meeting, Dan. I think there's there's eight or ten people from different organizations that have that have got together. And um, the, I should have them talk about the details, but first of all, it's good to get together with a group of people, a small group of people in a private place where they can be educated. And so that's one step. It, wasn't, it was shortly after the incident where we had the first group protocol, is what we call it, right? Mm-hmm. Where Amy explained to a group of maybe, there were 10 people in the room, explained what's happening mentally and physically to us when we experience trauma. Just identifying that, and, and its studies have been done um, using MRI technology, just understanding the process of the brain shifts how we understand what's happening. And there's a big part of when you're in a group protocol like that, just understanding that what you're feeling, you're not alone in that. And, and that in itself is a huge relief to a lot yeah. of people because they think, oh my God, what's wrong with me? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not able to sleep. I'm, I'm, I've got brain fog. I don't know where I am. I'm, I'm, there must be something really wrong with me. But when they get in a group like that, they go, oh, this is a normal response to this trauma. Is, exactly. And that in itself is extremely helpful. I it's think, extremely sometimes. helpful because it sets people, myself and others included, on a trajectory where the next step is some kind of assessment, a personal assessment that can be shared with someone privately, a therapist, 
specifically is what we're doing here. And that assessment will identify now what what state am I in? Am I in a, a, a place of continual trauma? Am I reliving this over and over again in my mind? Is this is these questions keep coming up and I can't focus on other things that are important? Once that assessment's done and we're able to see where we're at, for example, my assessment a few days after this, when we first met, um, in this assessment that, that Amy puts out on her website and we're using, um, 24 and below is relatively healthy, right? And anything above that is some concern. And mine was at 63, right? So that's four times, right? It wasn't like I was shaking in my boots and I was I couldn't function. I could still function in many, many ways, but the potential for future problems could have been there. And so that assessment said, oh, yeah, I need some more tools. So I met with Amy. We had a great um, conversation. She helped me understand some things. We, we went through a process. And I haven't done the assessment since. I'm sorry, Amy, but I feel really good. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I feel like I've gone way down because I understand what my body's doing, and I can regulate that better. And, and part of that is, I mean, you were reliving this over and over and over again in your media briefings and in questions from the media, and in working with the investigation, and and so this was a recycling event for you, whereas somebody you know like Cindy, who was very close to the family. Um, it, it sort of happened, but then it kind of tapers at that point, I guess. But you you put yourself back into it now, so you're dealing with people who are experiencing that trauma, and it's it's recycling the event for you. That was always the big thing. We never, when I was a cop, we never talked to our families about what we experienced because we didn't want to share the trauma. We didn't know that term yeah. at the time. We just didn't want to traumatize, make other victims. Um, uh, our way of looking at it was just, hey, this is too horrific. I don't want my family thinking about this. But, you know, that's also a concern, I think, with people who have experienced trauma is, is they don't want to wound other people. And that's pretty common. And and I think the the answer to that, in my mind, from what I've seen over this last month, is that, yes, you don't want to you don't want to keep having this conversation about details of an event. You want to get in a place where you can have a productive conversation about what's happening to my, um, re how I'm reacting, and then get in front of somebody with someone who has the skills available to help you understand what's happening. So yeah, as police officers, you don't want to, uh, as law enforcement, that, that's typical. You don't want to share this with your family and bring that home. However, there are avenues in place so you can understand it yourself, so you have better tools, so when you see something your family's experiencing, you can have those conversations in the right way. And having them in the right way is important. I mean, and, and this is not a diss on, on LDS bishops by any means, mm -hmm. but they are not trained mental health workers. And, and so a lot of people who come from that religious community might want to have that conversation with you know their bishop or, or somebody in, in that capacity as a counselor in the church, but that person isn't trained. And, and actually the average counselor isn't trained in the physical response to trauma. And so I think that meeting that we had uh, with the hate family, they mentioned that they're, you know, I think it was Ken, the sheriff, that, that mentioned there's just a small number of people who are specifically trained trauma counselors who can address this type of, of event. Yeah, and it's important to realize that even those trauma counselors, those therapists, one of which is sitting right here in this room, are willing and able through what we're going to talk about in a little bit about funding the funding mechanism 
to help train other therapists in this this effort to get the word out and to get people in into getting some I, w- I wouldn't know if I call it counseling or therapy, but get some help, get some understanding, some education. And that's because, going on right now is yeah. you're in the process of training. Tell us a little bit about w- the efforts that are that are underway. Tell us what the typical protocol would look like, what the EMDR is, and, and kind of give us some of that history. Well, um, if it's okay, I'd like to step back at just a couple steps here because it'll help make sense as we move forward. Yeah. Um, one thing you said I want to draw some uh, strong attention to is you identified like, like compared to Rob having to replay and replay and replay this event as he's been going through media and stuff like that in Cindy's situation, uh, being a little bit different, maybe tapering off. I want to make it like super, super clear to everyone that listens to this. That actually isn't really the case. It may not be that the police cars are out front anymore, but I can tell you, I have to drive by that house every day to Uh, pick up her daughter to take her to school. It hits me every time I see that house. I know that every time Cindy goes home, all she has to do is look down the street. There it is right there. And it's all replaying every time. We had a conversation this morning, you know, just about all these little things that pop up and it is how our brain works. And it is part of the reason why it builds those adaptive responses is that the amygdala in our brain has taken pictures of all of the events as they played out in there and each of us in our own unique way of how we saw it, experienced what we knew and what we didn't know, didn't know about it. And it stored all of that. And when something comes up that's even kind of like it, it will bring that right back up in the brain and in the body. And if we've repeated that enough times, it actually starts moving into our subconscious. And I promise you, it is still running there in the background and you think like i'll ask people oh no i'm fine and i'm like give me a minute with you and let's see if you're really fine that's where the assessment comes in and it turns out they're not fine they're they're a little more sluggish they're not getting out of bed as easy in the morning they're um we were talking about this morning like every time those helicopters fly over because we're used to them from the helicopter school right if i hear a helicopter i can tell you my brain tracks it now And I had gotten to a point where I don't track them anymore. It was just like the freeway, you know, you don't follow it anymore once you've lived by it for a while. My brain totally tracks the helicopters now. From from, the news helicopters. Yeah, from from that night, the news helicopters were really low and we couldn't go to sleep because they were so loud. Not that anybody could sleep that night anyways. Along that line, just really quickly, just a little plug. It doesn't mean that she's unhealthy. Well, right. no, and I think I what's, what's right. valuable... Just the ra- reality of how our bodies respond no. to trauma. It's still waiting for the danger to happen again. Well, and I think what's valuable here is is if you ask somebody how they are and they say, I'm fine, that's a subjective measurement, <laughs> whereas this assessment is a very objective right. um, means of measuring how somebody is actually coping with this trauma and the triggers that will set off those images in the mind that you're talking about. So talk a little bit about what that, that assessment looks like and, and what some of the protocols look like. Yeah, so yeah, now I'll walk you through the steps. I just want to like, I have a lot of passion about that. I want people to know and realize this. You did not have to live on the street. You did not have to be exposed. And you may be running this through the background of your brain on a regular basis. So yes, that's where this assessment becomes so very important. And Rob mentions it's on my website, but we've moved... It's still on my website, the PB&J Consulting website, but we've moved that to be housed under the Cedar Mental Health Group's website. So we have a a neutral uh, accessibility for the public to be able to uh, access all the therapists in Cedar. Um, And there's an assessment on there, isn't there? Yes. So uh, there is a 
if you go to the Cedar Mental Health, it's cedarcitymentalhealth.com. So I think it's cedarcitymh.com. And then community trauma tab, you're going to find some evaluations there. Okay, we have the impact of events scale on there. And then we have a child screening tool. Okay, the impact of events scale, we're having anybody pretty much 13 years old and up taking that one. And the child screening tool obviously is for anybody younger, but you can also use it for adolescents just depending on where their skill set is and being able to read and answer the questions themselves. So they take that evaluation. It's identifying uh, different things that we know are signs and symptoms of trauma responses. They're going to answer that. It's, it's laid out that um, they each have a point quality to them, a, point, a score, and that score is adding up as they're going along. And once they've completed it, if they complete that online uh, assessment, they're going to see their score right away. It's going to pop right up for them and say, you scored this, and here is a breakdown of the different ranges of these scores. As he mentioned, we're looking at like 20s and under, says that you're processing the information, your body's moving it along okay, education is appropriate, and just continue monitoring to see that those numbers continue to go down. Um, then we have that, uh, it's what, about 22 plus to about 33, I think is the number there, between those scores, that we know that there's still a significant amount of distress and some support is wise to reach out to. It doesn't necessarily have to be individual therapy, and actually there's just not enough therapists in this community to see that many people. Okay, when, the, when we first started doing the evaluations and putting them out just word of mouth, the ones we were getting back in, people were inevitably scoring 33 plus, which is that next tier up, which, which demonstrates that if their body and their nervous system is firing at a high enough rate to result in post-traumatic stress disorder with symptoms showing up as much as 10 years later. Okay, that it literally alters their system, that it can, it can settle in that way. Um, so this assessment can help break those down and then we've built a program here to address all these tiers. We've created a three-tier program. Uh, tier number one is education. We're trying to put out videos, uh, podcasts, all the education we can. We we met in Enoch and did some initial education. Um, Cindy Jones, who has been a collaborator in this as well, has already been in meeting with teachers and classes in the school, offering education and and educational processes there. Um, I mean, anywhere where we can get any types of education. Uh, my business does uh, videos every Wednesday, just talking about a variety of mental health. Um, tools and tips and techniques and different things, but we're trying to disseminate education really well. And on that mental health site, under that community response tab, is also videos um, so that they can access some education that way. So we're trying to create a, a multiple avenues to access education for free. And we need to have more uh, town conversations on the topic as well, pulling people together. Because again, like you've mentioned, there is a power to being in the same room and talking about these things. And then when people hear other people talking about their experience, then suddenly we can rise together. We're not alone in it. Trauma will cause us to tuck into ourselves and cause us to feel very isolated. We think maybe we're broken, that we're not, like there must be something wrong with me that I'm not feeling better by now. And, and I want you all to know, like, yeah, get yourself into these conversations because you've got to know you are not alone. This is all running in the background of all of us, 
right now, and not just in Enoch. This is Cedar. This is Iron County. This is probably people that just watch the news. This could be anywhere in America, honestly. But so, how do I get that help if I if I'm feeling like I need I, I do the assessment and it, it says that I need to go further? What so what's my next system, step? We have a system set up for that. So if you complete these uh, this assessment online, you get that score. But that score is also then landing in with a member of our committee that we've created. And that committee member is then responding back with an email saying your score was this, which they already know they've got the score, but your score was this. And based on this, here are some resources available to you. If it's education, they're, they're given the link directly to that Cedar Mental Health site with those education pieces already on there and those resources made available. If they're scoring anything higher than, in, than those low 20s, and they're being provided with information about um, our second tier, which is this group protocol. Okay, this is not the group education. This is an EMDR protocol designed to treat larger numbers of people in an event like what we've had. It's, it's been used for years. They used it in refugee camp. They still use it in refugee camps and things to treat people that are in this heightened state and we can put a, a, a larger number, up to like even 20 or so, in a room and go through these specific steps. Now, this is not your get in a circle and talk about your feelings group. Okay, that like scares everybody. Nobody wants to go to that group. Okay, everybody's terrified of that. Um, this is an individual process that they sit and do as their own self. It's set up like a classroom and they're sat at a table with their supplies that they need to go through this process. And then the facilitator is walking them through first a bit of education to make sure they know they can engage the topic and ground themselves well and work through it okay. So they're provided that education and then worked through step by step a process that they're individually processing that trauma and utilizing the bilateral tapping that we teach people how to do in order to help their brains uh, process that information more effectively. And we're working them through that process they take a break for about an hour and we do it again. If this was being done in, in Mexico where it's done by the creator of the, of the protocol, he would do it um, three days in a row. They would do six sessions back to back to back to back, all like that. But we're in Cedar City and we have the resources we have. So we run one group at a time. And so somebody can come in. We're running them every Saturday for adults and then we're uh, tapping in youth groups as we, as we pull the numbers together, we've got a youth group going to be doing uh, hopefully this Friday. And we did this one this last Saturday. And they came in, they sat at the table, they worked through the process. Facilitator walks them through that process. And then we have another therapist in the room checking in with each person as they're going through to make sure they're grounded okay, they're processing the information, they feel safe, they feel supported as they go through that. That would be the group protocol, kind of that middle range, that middle tier. I want to go back for a second, though, and talk about the assessment, because I think this is an important point to make. Even though the assessment portion is interactive, it's anonymous. Oh, absolutely. We, we built it under a HIPAA-compliant format, so, and, and it goes directly to a mental health provider. So we are governed by the HIPAA laws and rules that that information cannot go out to anywhere. The only person that gets a response to that is the person that submitted the form, um, unless they indicate that they want us to send it to a, a clinical provider. So if they already have a therapist, 
and they want us to, to share that results with their therapist, then they'll have to mark that. So it's not anonymous, but it's confidential. However, they can print out a PDF a paper copy of it and just do it themselves to see if they want to know their own score without sharing it. But, but confidential, where therapists bound by HIPAA laws are receiving the information, if they want to be connected uh, and added to the list of um, people who are then reached out and offered the group protocol and those kind of things, then they do want to submit the form electronically and trust that it's going through a, a HIPAA-compliant anonymous. So for people who don't know, process. HIPAA is the Health Information Privacy and Portability Act, and that was passed to give patients control over their information. So there's protocols put in place to comply with that federal legislation that was passed that dictate how information is shared between healthcare providers and what information can be shared without permission of the patient. And so you're following those, those HIPAA guidelines and protocols. And I think that's an important thing for people to understand that, you know, they're not sharing their information with Facebook and anybody right. in the world can see it. It's very controlled who gets that information and how it shared. Yes, absolutely. We're taking all those precautions to be sure. We want people to feel really safe in accessing services. That's a huge goal of the committee that we've created is to reduce as many barriers as we possibly can for people getting the treatment. The reality is our area does not have enough providers to treat the number of people in our area, and that's only gotten even more um, harder over the la this boom we've experienced these last years. And and so this protocol that I'm talking about is the most cost-effective and really one of the only ways we're going to be able to treat the sheer number that really need to be treated, treat them with an evidence-based treatment that we know works, and to do it in the sh with the sheer numbers with a small number of uh, providers. So one of the barriers is the number of providers, but another one is the cost that, you know, this is not a free service. It, it'd be wonderful if we live in a society where, and you have provided a lot for no charge, um, but you have to make a living. You have to pay your bills and, and other uh, providers have to pay their bills. So one of the elements of this is overcoming that barrier of cost to individuals who want this treatment. Talk to us about that. So um, this committee that we've created has two tracks. We have the treatment track, what we've just been talking about. Um, accessing those resources, getting people into the right treatment. Some people will still score high enough that we will recommend individual treatment. And we're trying to collaborate with all the local providers to disseminate people if they cut, if we get a score of that level to, to get them into service as quickly as we possibly can. We've even reached out to St. George providers and we've had an amazing response from people that we know do good, amazing quality work that have kicked back saying, hey, I'll make spaces. I'll make spaces to get in people if they're an emergent. And that happened all in those first weeks after the event happened. And we're continuing to build that, that resource to help people who have immediate needs. Um, that's all the treatment track, but the other track is the funding, right? Like somehow that's all has to get paid for. And some people, and it's a huge issue in our area is we have um, what we call underinsured. So they have insurance, but they have these really high deductibles. And so then that precludes them from being able to get that treatment. And so the other track of this committee is our fundraising track. And Cindy can talk about how, how that looks and how that's going down. But I'll tell you on the mental health provider side of it, um, 
as they're building and, and organizing those funds, then we as providers can contract with that committee and uh, under the the contract and guidelines of it to offer safety to donors and and to access it, um, that we can reach out and say, hey, I've got somebody and this is their financial situation. Can we get some financial support to get them into the treatment? And, and those organizations are 501c3 nonprofits and they have um, their tax exempt organizations. So like if you donated money to the Friends of the Iron County Sheriff or to uh, Canyon Creek Services or any of those groups, um, the IRS isn't eating up a bunch of, of those funds, whereas people individually raising money are going to, in about 30% of that, is going to get eaten up by the IRS. So by working with 501c3 organizations, you're, you're maximizing those contributions and donations. Talk to us about that, Cindy. Yeah, so uh, I, I got involved because I, I did want to help I could see, you know, that Rob is inundated with phone calls and just getting hit from all angles. Uh, I could see that the Amy and these therapists are just working extra hours to meet with first responders al- alone and uh, just different people so closely affected that they're doing the work, the one-on-one, and really don't have the time and capacity to to coordinate, do the community collaboration piece of this. And so I jumped in to help out with this committee and my experience with nonprofits. Uh, I have talked to the Canyon Creek Services and the Family Support Center of Southwestern Utah, which I work part-time there right now, and I previously worked at Canyon Creek Services, so I'm very familiar with both those nonprofits. And their missions very closely align with the purpose of this committee and what we're wanting to do. And so both of them have set up funding campaigns titled the Enoch Community Trauma Recovery Fund, and they've both set up campaigns that you can specifically go to their websites and donate to that campaign, and that money will be tracked separately, and there will be follow-up reports, transparency, they're just agreeing to pass through those funds for this this committee and and to pay the therapists for the group protocol and the individual therapy that for those underinsured or under uninsured individuals and um, just all the extra pieces of this that uh, there currently isn't a way to pay for and so um, so that's the piece we're working on to just make sure that we can help everyone who needs help to heal and process from this and to not have to worry about having to pay for it so that all the group protocols are being offered free of charge um, but but we're wanting to pull bring funding in to pay for the therapist offering that uh, and we'll have links to those groups um, in, in their websites where they can where you can go and donate and addresses where you can write checks and send them to. Um, I, I still get checks uh, sent in even after our fundraiser. I've, I had a $200 check come in from Boulevard Furniture the other day. Um, God bless them. So the community has been amazingly generous in this. And, and I know in talking to a lot of people, that's the number one question. How can I help? That This community is absolutely astounding in their generosity toward helping others who are struggling and going through a hard time. And so there are some avenues out there that aren't helpful. 
but people feel like they're helping. Um, and, and there's no controls on where those funds go. The nice thing about working with 501c3 organizations is our, our records are open book. You, you can come and look at our records at any point. You can see where we've written checks and where we've collected funds. And I've written you a few checks already, Rob, and, and those funds are actually actively being used. So it, it there are some resources that you can help that are vetted, that are guaranteed to be going where they need to be going, and we'll have resources uh, and websites and information on the website, um, what's really happening, su.com. And uh, what, what have we missed that we need to talk about here? Is there anything that we haven't touched on that people need to know? Um, <clears throat> from a community perspective, there also has to be an understanding that that we live in a great place. I mean, the amount of care and concern that has been just poured out upon our community, not just by community members, but by other partners in our state and also nationally. There's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that I've been involved with that um, but our community, our area, Iron County um, specifically, is full of such good people who care, who are concerned, who want to help. Um, initially, in the first part of this whole incident, I, yeah, I, was, I received all kinds of requests. Where can I help? Where can I help? And I had no place to send them. I had nothing because... There wasn't anything set up. I mean, there was yours, um, Dan, where you set that up and we sent people there. But um, as back back when the flooding happened in Enoch uh, uh, some year ago, two years ago, um, one of the things that we talked to the governor about uh, when he came down and visited with us is that, and the lieutenant governor also is, you know, the next thing's going to come and people are going to forget. But we don't forget because we live here. We're here now, and we're not forgetting. But the rest of the world kind of does, right? Because the next disaster that happens, and that's the problem. That is a, a great big challenge because we're all want. We all need help. We all need resources. But it's been a month, and those who have called and asked to help haven't had able to give help anywhere. And now the next thing is coming. They're gone. So I think if we get the word out that these avenues to help individuals and families in our community are there, both to them and to those who want to help and get that resource moving, which of course is dollars in most cases, uh, we, I don't think we can eat any more cookies and donuts at the police department. I mean, I think we were inundated with those two, which are fantastic. We're going to need a weight loss program for all the officers. <laughs> and, and that has been amazing to watch these children walk in with a, a box of donuts and just, just loving on the police officers. I love the heart attacks when they do those. Yeah. They, just, yeah. they put little paper hearts all over everywhere. And, and it's been so amazing to watch um, neighbors caring for neighbors. But like Amy said, it's not over. It's going to continue. And it's because of the trauma that we felt. We just need to hang on to each other and keep moving forward the best we can. And there's a goal, Cindy, that you're trying to reach financially. There's a number you're trying to reach. Yeah, we set our initial goal at 50,000. Um, we know that um, 
this is going to be an ongoing need that we're going to continue with for up to six months. And uh, the group protocol takes two to three therapists being there, depending on the size of the group, and they're spending their day a minimum of five hours uh, through this process. So uh, we're not entirely sure on the details of the breakdown, but we feel like 50000 is is a good goal to start with. And I mean, we've probably already spent around 10000 that needs to be reimbursed just because we moved forward with the the process. Well, I, I've done that, so yeah, you've got you've got that ten thousand yep. from yep. friends by your county yep. sure. That's why we reached out and appreciate the collaboration and and that you just jumped in and did a fundraiser right there in the beginning when everyone was wanting to give and help. we we put that together in a week. <laughs> Me and my buddy, who's also a jarhead, we said only you know two jarheads would be stupid enough to try to put something <laughs> that big together in a week. That's but uh yeah and, and i don't think it could have been nearly as successful as it was without this community just jumping on board i mean we were blown away by the the generosity of this community so we're hopeful that the community will continue to be generous and uh and look at ways that they can truly help uh people move forward and and get through this experience so we want to thank everybody and we again will have all of those resources on the website what's really happening in iron and go ahead cindy yeah i i just wanted to add one more thing before we close up here uh, i've been through two of the group protocols i've, I've gone through two days of, of two sessions each day and i it, it really really helped me and you know it's interesting because the whole week leading up to the group protocol, I, I was functioning pretty well in my life. I hadn't broke down and cried. I was like, I'm, I'm doing okay. But I sat down on that group protocol and man, it just brings it to the surface. And I, I just cried and cried and cried and released so much emotion, um, which, you know, I think everyone is going to process it on different levels. And I was closely affected, but um, but I brought my husband. I had him go through the protocol the second week that I went through it. Um, the second week, completely different stuff came up for me. And since those two group protocols, I've been doing some individual stuff because it's interesting how it hits in waves, you know, and I'll be doing really well. And then I had a really vivid dream. And, and for a few days, I was just kind of shook up and that's all I could think about again. And then doing pretty well, and then all of a sudden I heard I heard some noise that sounded like gunshots, and I was it's like it was an immediate trigger, and I'm I didn't even hear the gunshots initially, I was dead asleep, but I am just hyper aware of um, of different I'm getting triggered, and I'm just going along with my life, and I'm like man this is crazy, it's just how trauma works in the brain. But those things don't go away. Trauma does not, it's not going to go away on its own. And so it's, it's important for people, I think, to utilize, take advantage of this group protocol because we're going to be offering them continuously. Um, find out about them, go through it. It could really help, but it's not going to hurt. So I know it takes some courage to get there. It took courage for, for myself and my husband to go through it. But it's worth it to process through that trauma. It works. It, this is evidence-based stuff. 
and uh, and so I, I just wanted to kind of give my testimony of that that group protocol that um, take advantage of that resource and then the last bit that I just wanted to share really quickly was that I do think it's important for our community to be talking about this and I've, I've seen a lot of mixed messaging and there's people who just say you know let the family heal leave this alone don't talk about it but the reality is in hindsight we do need to look at these situations and learn from them and do better and and there's a lot of examples one of which I'll just mention quickly is the lethality assessment protocol and that's big on Capitol Hill this year they're they're running a bill uh, and you can you can google it and learn more about it but we did the first pilot back when I was at Canyon Creek and we were up on Capitol Hill with law enforcement and, and setting this up for the state of Utah but the lethality assessment protocol is this really cool tool that can actually help prevent domestic violence homicides and it how they came up with it was by looking at thousands of domestic violence related homicides that had happened what are the common denominators and then they ask 11 questions so you know there's there is good that can come from talking about this as a community we can learn from it there are things that we can do to prevent this from happening and I and I do think that there's parts of this that we can understand we can understand the difference between a personality disorder versus mental illness what's the difference because there's been a lot of talk about about that as far as you know and one of the people who was really involved with that lethality assessment was a guy named Gavin DeBecker. Uh, he has DeBecker and Associates out of L.A. And he is the author of a book called The Gift of Fear. And it's something that I highly recommend that anybody who is um, even having an inkling that they might become a victim of violence uh, get this book. They keep copies of it on hand at Main Street Books at my request, and, and they always have it there. Um, so that's Gavin DeBecker's The Gift of Fear. Highly recommend that book for anyone who has an inkling that they could become a victim of violence. Well, folks, I appreciate you coming in. I think we're about out of time. Um, but again, all of this information, all the links will be on our website at whatsreallyhappeningsu.com. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to What's Really Happening in Southern Utah, the podcast. We hope that you found this content to be worthwhile. We want to hear from you. So if you have any upcoming event that you'd like to share with our listeners, or if you represent a local group, we'd love to have you come into the studio. Just email us at contact at whatsreallyhappeningsu.com. We're also working on streaming this podcast live and have the ability for folks to call in and ask questions or share items of interest to residents of Southern Utah. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends. And again, thanks for listening.